There's an old piano and they play it hot behind the green door. I really think we should just sing all these songs for you. That, that the, Can you imagine if that was the episode? It really speaks like we are the whitest white guys, and this soundtrack speaks to the whitest white people ever. We're in white people heaven, late <laughs> 60s Hollywood, rich people. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Well, hey, and we're back. And after much ado and much build up, it's finally here. We're going to discuss Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on this, the uh, fifth day after the national opening of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Not going to do any misdirect with you today because we got way too much to cover. Uh, we're going to handle this episode like a Oscar Sprint Profile slash Tarantino rewatch series. It's going to be a mixture of both. And with that, we're going to have a two-part review. Uh, we have way too much to say. We've both seen this movie three times apiece. We have pages upon pages of notes. If you looked at our Instagram story yesterday, I was uh, had a boomerang up there of us of me flipping through all the pages of both Mike and I have prepared for this. There's just too much out there. So with that in mind, we're going to have a two-part. We're going to have a non-spoiler episode, which is what this episode will be. And then we'll have a spoiler-filled episode that'll probably be coming out another day, if not one day, then two days from now when you're listening to this. Uh, but to remind you about what makes these Tarantino episodes different from every other episode that we do, Michael... Yeah, we do eight not-so-hateful segments. I screwed up that <laughs> you uh, did. delivery. You That's fine. We have first-watch stories, homages, and what made Quentin dance in uh, this episode today. Then we'll do five new segments differing from our OSPs in part two. Look, we think that this is a great episode today. We're really happy about it. Yeah. Tell your friends. Bottom line is, when we do a two-parter, like a non-spoiler and a spoiler... We will not spoil the plot for you in the first half, but we're going to break things down just like we do in the spoiler section. If if anything, we actually can go deeper. It's way more analytical, the non-spoiler stuff, yeah. because we have actual stats and stuff to back it up with and talk about, and history, precedent, all that stuff, especially when we're talking about the Oscars. Yeah, the feature of this is our Oscar lens. Yeah. We're going to compare all of the uh, categories that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood could be up for yep. to our mid-year report, to what we've seen already, and to last year's categories. We're going to do that for the bigger awards. We're going to kind of just compare it to last year for the undercard. But in terms of what OSPs do, you know, we're going to give you a production profile that goes behind the scenes, uh, analyzes the numbers. Then we're going to do non-spoiler reviews of the uh, production values, performances, uh, general thoughts about the script, and like I said, that Oscar lens. So this is jam-packed, Mike. Yeah, so usually with the Tarantino Rewatch series, you get a non-spoiler review and a spoiler review all in one episode for this one, like we said, because there's just too much to cover. This will be your non-spoiler episode. The spoiler episode will be coming in a couple days, but nonetheless, we're going to get started as we always do, and the way we start, uh, I'm Mike One, that's also Mike, awesome and he's going to give you the cast and crew rundown to start Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's much less of a rundown than it is like three topics that I want to cover because we've previewed this movie already. And Have we? Run down. Have we talked about this before? <laughs> the cast. It's been a big series. <laughs> yeah, listen to our whole Tarantino Rewatch <laughs> series. My God. You got a free 14 right. hours. Tw yeah, 12 episodes, 14 hours. My God. We are lunatics mm -hmm. and we're obsessed. Yeah. We're absolutely obsessed. So here's one on a. Thank on a God this was okay. Yeah. <laughs> the new Hollywood royalty that he cast in this movie you have the daughters of his friends of his former actors yeah of tarantino's people you have the manson family including the castings of maya hawk daughter of uma thurman and ethan hawk there's your olive branch her eyes her voice that's mommy yeah that's totally, totally looks like her margaret qualley 
if I could say it without two Qs, just one, Margaret Qualley, daughter of Andy McDowell. Talk from, about another one that's a spitting image of her mother. Yeah, Groundhog Day, Four Weddings and a Funeral. She's going to be in that uh, Ready or Not movie coming out soon. We have Harley Quinn Smith, daughter of Kevin Smith. Does not look like Daddy. No. Good for her. Yeah. Um, there's also <laughs> no offense, rumor. Kevin. Yeah, rumor Willis. Well, he's a handsome man. Right. She would have been we, a handsome woman. We have daughters. We don't want them looking like us. No. <laughs> just the cleft in my chin. is Poor girl. Rumor Willis has daddy's chin, but she's a beautiful woman. And she yes. can dance. My God. I Even I watched Dancing with the Stars when she was on that. She's a friend of Sharon Tate in this. So as Chris Ryan put it, you know, Hollywood's a legacy town, and Tarantino is definitely on purpose, deliberately, casting these girls in the Manson family to show how the rich people, the middle class, was definitely vulnerable to Manson's yeah. charms, etc. I thought that was fascinating. And he's giving, he's giving them all a platform. I and mean, look, who doesn't want to work in a Tarantino movie? Margot Robbie, before she got the part, was on record saying, I would kill to work with Quentin Tarantino. So, you know, it's a big deal, and it is a big deal to get all these people involved, and whether they are friends with Tarantino, whether you believe that the Uma Thurman, the, the daughter of Uma Thurman being cast in this is kind of a mea culpa and an olive branch by Tarantino being extended out, whether you believe Rumor Willis being involved in this is just because her star is on the rise, whatever your background or whatever your belief system is, the fact that he got them all here and all to portray the same quote-unquote family, kind of cool. It's probably going to be one of those instances we look back on in Hollywood history and point to and be like, that was really, really unique that he got them all on film in one single shot like that. 20 years ago, I would have said the tabloids could have gone nuts nuts with this yeah. throughout the pre-production. Now it's just like the regular news can go nuts with <laughs> right. it. Mike, the breakout star of this film, unequivocally, yeah. is Julia Butters. God, she was awesome. She is a 12-year-old young actress. She plays an 8-year-old girl acting in this Lancer episode opposite of Rick Dalton slash Leonardo DiCaprio. She is the scene stealer of the film. Uh, a couple of nuggets from a great Hollywood Reporter article include the fact that, of course, this precocious 12-year-old girl was writing a script of her own, uh, handwriting it, on a stack of papers. The papers all blew away with a gust of wind, and none other than Luke Perry, who has a limp in the film, doesn't have a limp and, and or didn't have a limp in real life, ran around the whole set and grabbed all the papers for her in a flash, and she just looked back at that so fondly, and we all just say awe to that because of the late, great Luke Perry. So once uh, Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet have had their run running Hollywood and dominating the industry with Jennifer Lawrence by their side, uh, we know who will be next yeah, after them. It's Julia Butters, <laughs> and look at the trend. Training she's getting. Yeah. She is pen pals with really Tarantino. Cool. Tarantino's wanting, uh, he wants to help her build up her writing skills, and they're pen pals. And then you have DiCaprio inviting Butters and her mother over the house to run lines and to give her acting lessons. And she got a ton of great tips from Leo, including the fact that. He says, say a word slightly differently, change your facial expression just a little bit so that people are getting what they're not expecting from you. Here's my question. Why would this little girl go to school? Her screenwriting mentor is Quentin Tarantino. Her acting coach is Leonardo DiCaprio. Why would you go to... If just you're her parents, you got to just try to... Keep her in with those two. A lot a lot of these kids, they don't go to school. They're right. homeschooled, and they're just on set every day or every other week right. or whatever. Uh, the last nugget I have about the casting is that, sadly, Burt Reynolds, he was cast in the role of George Spawn, yeah. who was eventually played by Bruce Dern. Did you say Spawn? 
Spawn. Spawn. Spawn? Yeah. Spawn is a McFarland action figure from the 90s. That's correct. Yeah. Spawn. Spawn Ranch. <laughs> I didn't know if that was the drawl from Leo and Brad no, in this S-P-A-H-N. movie. No, S-P-A-H-N. Spawn Ranch. Spawn, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. Uh, Reynolds was close friends uh, with his stuntman, Hal Needham. And Tarantino, in many ways, bases the filmography of Rick Dalton on Burt Reynolds' actual career. Needham would eventually direct... Smokey and the Bandit for Reynolds. He would eventually have a career of his own. Is that some hope for Brad Pitt's character in this? We'll talk about it. But I just thought it was really sweet that after Burt Reynolds died, Bruce Dern, who was a lifelong friend of Reynolds, took the role from Tarantino to honor his buddy. I'm a little more surprised that, okay, yes, that's a very sweet story, but in the alternative, that means that Bruce Dern wasn't going to be involved in this after being involved in the last couple Tarantino movies? He wasn't. A little bit of a surprise for me, anyway. But yeah, that is a really cute story and really sweet. Really heartwarming, too. So you got some specs here, Mike. All right. So this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And in some weird way, even though this is a film that will weigh heavy throughout award season, and though you're all sick of hearing us talk about it and hype it up already, in some weird backwards way, because of the way the specs section of these Tarantino rewatch episodes have been structured, this is probably the film which will require the least amount of prep work on my part for this section. Although all of it's going to be around the ellipses, right? The dot, dot, dot. That's a triple alliterative uh, improvisation. improvisation. (laughs) By the way, I wanted to shout out that guy too when you were talking about Julia Butters. Nicholas Hammond playing director Sam Wanamaker. Awesome. Loved him. Stole the scenes as well. Um, vroom, vroom. <laughs> I'm an ass. I, the quoting that's going to happen oh, yeah. it's in gonna real life. It's going to be bad. Oh, yeah. We're going to just butcher a Tarantino movie. If we make fun of ourselves after we quote the lines, does that work for, right. for well, people? Let's for the hope people. so, because that's what's going to happen. Yeah, that's it's going to happen. <laughs> All right, don't so fight it. why I don't need to have a lot of prep work for this is because you already know, dear listener, everything, especially if you've been listening to Mike, Mike, and Oscar since its inception, as we've been following the production of this movie since the beginning. But for those of you who haven't and who aren't familiar with the story, this is Tarantino's love letter to Hollywood. And from the day the news broke by Boris Kidd of The Hollywood Reporter that Quentin had this screenplay finished in hand, there were already big-time A-listers listed among the news, alongside it anyway, namely, that Brad Pitt and Jennifer Lawrence were rumored to be considered for this project. Now, mind you, this was in July of 2017, or roughly three months prior to all hell breaking loose for alleged monsters in Hollywood power positions receiving their comeuppance at the hands of the Me Too movement. So at the outset, Tarantino was again expected to collaborate with the Weinstein brothers and likely their company for distribution and financing. However, once what happened, happened, and the rug came out from under Harvey Weinstein, Tarantino removed himself from the Weinstein company altogether, Good, becoming, for all intents and purposes, a free agent in the movie industry for the first time in his career, mm-hmm. as he had previously had every movie of his attached to the Weinstein Like books. on one of our very first Hollywood hot takes. This was a couple years ago. Yeah. We were all over this. Sure were. Uh, and just FYI, if you're new and you need a complete rundown and recap of what exactly happened regarding Tarantino, Weinstein, Uma Thurman, and the Me Too movement, you can check all that out in the specs section of our review of Kill Bill Volume 2. As for a reporter who had the story of Tarantino's courtship by the studios and what exactly the script to Hollywood held within, one need look no further than the work Mike Fleming Jr. did for Deadline.com. While there was speculation abounding with regards to Tarantino making a, quote, Charles Manson Roman Polanski movie, which drew criticism from the likes of Judd Apatow on Twitter, it was Fleming who was one, if not the first person, to speak on what exactly the film had in store by providing a quote in November of 2017 stating, quote, There has been a lot of press that the script focuses on Charles Manson and the murder spree he orchestrated, but I'm told 
that that is akin to calling Inglorious Bastards a movie about Adolf Hitler when the Nazi leader was only in a scene or two. Correct. Fleming would go on to report accurately that Tarantino had also chatted with Margot Robbie about playing the role of Sharon Tate in the film and had been in contact with Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Tarantino's standby Samuel L. Jackson about starring. Just ten days after the release of Fleming's article, it would come to light that Tarantino had reached agreement with Sony. And, as any high-profile free agent in any sport should do, Quinton made sure he got all the perks in the world he could ask for before settling in with his new, <laughs> quote, team. All of them is right. Just like the NBA, and we kind of talked about it a little bit, Yeah. just like all the power moves of this free agency, Tarantino did that but with the film biz. Uh, and why wouldn't he, right? It's his first time really getting his feet wet and having studios come to him as opposed to He's vice versa. own this property in 30 years. Amazing. Own it. Of the demands Sony gave to the director, all of which can be found on Wikipedia and confirmed via yet another Boris Kitt Hollywood Reporter article, a $95 million production budget, which, thanks to side funding and town tax breaks, the studio was reportedly able to whittle down to $90 million as a total cost. Final cut, quote, extraordinary creative controls. I don't know what that means if you have final cut. <laughs> And a 25% cut of first dollar grosses, which Kit was to later report meant that for the studio of Sony to make a dollar of profit off this film would mean that the worldwide box office would have to be in excess of $375 million. Oh, no. It's probably not going to do that. No, it's going to be close. Now, Sony's going to get a lot of cachet from this. And we've oh, been yeah. hard on them in the past. And yet they have done a lot of good the last couple of years. They fixed their Spider-Man problem. Mm -hmm. The Amazing Spider-Mans were a flop. Into the Spider-Verse was one of the... It might be the best Spider-Man movie we've ever seen. Right. And the Venom movie was a monstrous hit. Biggest October box office of all time. Worldwide box... It was a billion dollar film. Yeah. Incredible. So they're on the come up. Now they might be losing money on this deal. And yet if it wins Oscars... If it does Oscars for them, then they get all good new for prestige anyway. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and by the way, Tarantino negotiated that he gets full rights to the film. He receives the copyright after, depending on what source you believe, either a 10 to 20 or 20 to 30 year period. It's apparently a structured schedule where he gets certain rights back over the years as they pass. Based on who you believe, he will either own complete control of this film's copyright after either 20 or 30 years. Sony's also spoken a lot about the fact that Tarantino's like changing their culture. Like you, when you work with good directors, like your whole business, like every floor of the big building, working with Tarantino in, in a, one way or another, whether, whether it's marketing, et cetera, et cetera, all those divisions working with a, a director this strong, it's going to help them learn how it's done. Sure. Right? Sure. And, and the CEO of Sony, I forget his name, I'm sorry. He was talking about like how much of an effect Tarantino is having on the whole business. Well, Boris, in one of his articles that I was reading, he talked about how leaving the Weinstein Company was no small job by Tarantino because right. he not only had allegiance to them, but the 141 or whatever it is person that make up the entire company there from the ground up yeah. were all familiar with him and working with him. And Tarantino is very loyal to his casts and his crewmen as mm -hmm. well. Like he's worked with the same DP most the of the gang. time. He's worked yeah. with Rob Richardson. He's worked with Zoe Bell for a while. And Zoe Bell got promoted to stunt coordinator on this one. He's worked with a lot of the same people. He worked with Sally Menke for most of his films sure. before she passed away. He is very loyal to his guys and girls and his uh, crewmen, his dudes. Yeah. The gang. I mean, the gang, quote, in quotes, get their own credit at the end of this movie, right? The old Tarantino guys, even people that weren't in the final cut of the film, are listed in the credits. Tim Roth, cut. Yeah, yeah. 
So yes, Tarantino did get quite the haul from Sony indeed, but what's arguably even more impressive in the deal is the fact that Sony acquiesced to all of Tarantino's demands prior to a single actor being officially signed on to the project, meaning that in terms of a deal, the studio was banking solely on the resume, reputation, and allure of Tarantino, even during a period which he was being taken to task for his shortcomings during the Hollywood upheaval as well. We've only seen this happen a couple times. James Cameron after Avatar, mm -hmm. Peter Jackson after The Lord of the Rings. Very few times. Yeah, a lot of directors, don't, George Lucas, uh, right, once George time, Lucas. they don't really get to keep their own properties. Understandably so, because the studios are the ones putting up the money to make these possible. Mm -hmm. Again, it just comes down to this was a very unique occasion. I mean, this was free agency. This was LeBron being courted by Miami back you, in 2010. You, you overpay in free agents. Of course. <laughs> uh, eventually, the rumored A-listers did officially sign on with both Pitt and DiCaprio, agreeing to co-headline for a discounted fee of $10 million apiece. Not bad work if you can get it. And Margot Robbie taking the role of Tate as well. Sony was said to have spent an additional $110 million marketing the film around the world, so I'm sure they were just tickled pink when, on the heels of cutting this deal, giving the director all he wanted, no doubt to get in his good grades, for years to come, Tarantino doubled down on his claim that retirement from film would be just around the corner this past June once he completed his 10th or next feature film. Oopsies. I don't believe it. I, I, I believe <laughs> it, no, but I, I don't yeah. believe I believe he will retire, Mike. And then five or six years later, he'll come back. Yeah, he'll believe... have a child with his new wife, which yeah. is very exciting. He'll come back and he'll make well, his Well, that was film. the thing. He's talked about having a family and starting a family in many interviews. He just said it again when he was interviewed on Jimmy Kimmel last week mm -hmm. for the premiere of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, saying that, you know, I haven't had a family. I haven't gotten married. I want to do these things. I believe that Quentin Tarantino believes that as of this recording, when we're doing this July 30th, 2019, he thinks he's going to retire. Mm-hmm. I don't believe he's going to retire. We've talked about that. Well, maybe he'll write a premise like he did for Star Trek, and he'll give it to somebody else, and then he'll see the movie, and he'll be like, No! <laughs> I would have done it this way and that way, all right? And then he'll, he'll rip somebody a new one, and then he'll, he'll, he'll do it again, but he'll have to write it himself. Or he'll write his novel, and he'll, he'll do his theater production, right? He'll do that for the next six years. Those will be his creative outlets. And when he realizes that I'm just too good at directing movies, right. he'll come back to it at age 60 or whatever. Kill Bill Vi Volume three is going to be his Chinese democracy for you Guns N' Roses fans. Like he's not, you're not, you're going to get it at some point. I think whether it's good or not, when it finally comes out, is another story. We but, don't know. Yeah. Plot premise reads: Mike, a faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969, Los Angeles. So we took a time machine back no. to the late 60s. We've been there for the last five or six days ourselves. I've watched how many Manson documentaries? I think I watched four. And one's a so 20 was this, was this your first like foray diving deep into that world? It, it was. It was? Okay. I couldn't even listen to the first episode of the last podcast on the left. Right. Because it was all about his origins, Charlie yeah. Manson, and at Boys Town, and he's getting abused, mm -hmm. allegedly. It was disgusting. So I ended up listening to the last two episodes of that. It was great. Last podcast on the left, they always do a great job. But I, I've watched, we were talking about the YouTube videos. We've watched like every YouTube oh, yeah. video, every cast and crew thing. Our brains are overflowing. <laughs> Too much information. Well, yeah, it's it's a sure. brag. We're bragging. It's an obsession, though. Yeah. I don't know it's if not, it's we're a not good bragging. Brag. We're sick. We're sick. We're definitely <laughs> sick. So, this is a cry for help, is what this episode We're is. We're going to get into our non-spoiler <laughs> review now. We're going to start it with our first watch stories. Mike, my first watch. Mm -hmm. I was the lead laugher. 
This was my point of pride. <laughs> I'm bragging again. This was a very strange situation for me. I'm usually a little slow on the uptake with movie laughing. Okay. And then on the laugh way too hard once it sinks in kind of guy. Right. Basically, I'm, I'm like Hans Landa laughing at the strange mountain climbing story. <laughs> I like walk off and then I'll start cr- crying laughing. Right. I'm the weird one in generally but also in movie <laughs> laughing scenarios but with this movie i was like on the ball i, I had just eaten i was well fed i had eaten cheese this which is the brain opposite food. of your lion king experience opposite of lion king experience i i don't know if i'm a self-absorbed weirdo that i heard this i was also in a slightly lower volume theater i was in a small theater for my first watch i picked a weird time okay and i watched it in a smaller theater so the volume wasn't super loud so it happened like 20 times. I was the lead laugh, and then everybody else would laugh. And I kept <laughs> noticing. I'm like, yes, I, you are my followers. I am your yeah, leader. Because you understand how Charlie Manson like, had this all I go do. to his head. Yeah. I ex- under, it's the same thing, right. exactly, how I manipulated this audience. And this did not happen in my second watch. Okay. My second watch was a bigger, louder, fancier theater. So it was like a scenario where... I couldn't really hear the rest of it. But in that first theater, there was another guy who tried to, like, take over the lead laughing from me. And that got to you. You were not happy he about tried. this. He tried. Yeah. But he was, like, trying with, like, he was, like, anticipating the jokes ahead of time. It didn't work because most of them were non-jokes, and he would be the only one that laughed. And then I would purposely not even laugh. I would laugh at it in the second watch. So, so <laughs> you turned the first this into like, just a feud with this random man. This random man who was, I turned and looked at him. He was much older than me, <laughs> but he wanted to be the lead laugh at a few things. And maybe he got things from like 1969, but nobody else in the theater would laugh. Anyway, the good news is I went to the last showing with my brother John and realized oh, another strange thing about my laughing. Uh-huh. He and I have the exact same laugh. Oh, and we fa- haven't lived together since we were kids. No, your family is carbon copies of each other. We have the exact same laugh. We did it like throughout. I don't know if I was mimicking him or his mannerisms. I don't think so. But it was so bizarre. Like we just, he would laugh or I would laugh and boom, we were exchangely laughing, but we would laugh the same way throughout the whole movie. Mike, my watches of this movie were bizarre. But did you enjoy them? Oh, every time. I mean, this movie gets better upon every watch. There's more details that you notice. You react strongly each time as well to the good stuff and to a few of the bad things. Uh, to, to tease my review, I really enjoyed this So movie. for laughter, I think, you know, I, I get the, the joke that you're making, but it's also, it is a big part of this movie. Comedy is a big part of this movie. and It's he, a comedy. He hits some comedic spots so hard and so well. First of all, I didn't know Leo had it in him. To, to do the type of stuff, do the type of comedy he does, but I laugh like an idiot every time I see the same spots over and over. They hit me just as hard as they did the first time, yeah. so uh, you're, you're well within your rights to say that, to concentrate on how much you were laughing and guffawing at all that was going on, because yeah, I was too, and I don't know how you can't be. Interestingly enough, the three times I saw it, the theater was not full at any point. I, really? The first time I saw it on opening night, the first uh, showing that I was up in Maine on my vacation. The first showing they had, it was like a half-full theater. Second time, was I was back in my hometown. I took my brother to see it. It was like a half-full theater. And then I just saw it for the third time yesterday. I took my mother with me, and it was like six people in the theater. I'd say it was about three-quarters full for my first two watches. Okay. Like, the bottom seats were noticeably not full, and most of the upper seats were full. And then my last watch, I think I did a weird showing, but it was a smaller theater, leather seats. I think that was full. That's heartwarming to hear, because we talked about the finances and the financials about this and MMO Weekly and the money that it did. The B Cinema score that this movie has, I don't understand. It's his lowest cinema score that he's landed alongside The Hateful Eight. 
I echo what you just said. This movie gets better with rewatches, I feel like. I, I agree with you. At the same time, the first watch is a lot that you wouldn't expect. It's a it's sure. a pace. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a pace that you really wouldn't expect. And I think the same goes for the Hateful Eight and Inglorious Bastards. They're similarly paced, especially during the middles of those movies. But what do you remember from those movies? You remember the mayhem. Right. And you don't remember the slow pacing, the what he makes you go through to get there. And you forget. You have the selective memory kind of thing. I think that's the way this movie is going to play long term anyway. Did you expect, what what kind? without giving the spoilers and without giving anything away, did you expect anything or anything to happen specifically? Did you expect just to see a Manson well, retelling? Well, let's just say this, and we're not going to spoil this throughout the review. This is the one spoiler that I get mad at everybody for spoiling. We're not going to spoil whether or not he rewrites history no. or he keeps it that's the way That's a spoiler. It that's a spoiler. <laughs> And that's the biggest question of the film. Right. And he keeps you guessing throughout the film what he's going to do. And my first watch... But did you? Ex- my, what did you expect? What were your expectations of that? I expected no. I expected he would not rewrite history. And I, okay. would, I was... Uh, I, I love the way he pulled this one off. I expected Charles Manson to die. That's what I expected out of it. Because if you kill Adolf Hitler, then you've already got the cachet. Why wouldn't you do it? So that was my expectation as well. And like you said, we'll touch on that in spoilers when we get there. Let's move on here, Mike. Production values. All right, we're going to start with cinematography and a couple nuggets first. They built miniatures of that drive-in at Brad Pitt's house. And they got that overhead shot done to where Tarantino was like... The Van Nuys uh, (laughs) drive-in theater there. Tarantino was arguing with the Sony people. They're like, we should use... CGI for this. He's like, I'll know it's CGI. We can't do it. It'll be much cheaper to use CGI to build these miniatures. No, of course he couldn't do that. Mike, we have him being an establishing shot crane master. If his camera work and if Richardson's camera work could be given a martial arts status, it would be like the flying whooping crane or whatever. That would that's what it'd be called. That joke didn't work, but Mike, (laughs) the theaters, the the movie theaters, the restaurants, the famous homes. He sets those up so beautifully, and every shot is ridiculous. Blows my mind level. I mean, when we see the marquee at the Bruin, it opens up. This is the movie theater. It opens up like a castle for Sharon Tate's character. It's gorgeous. So I have two comments about the cinematography, and I love Rob Richardson. I love Tarantino. We've commented about the cinematography and how much how spectacular it is and how it's one of his more underrated aspects all throughout this rewatch series. My first comment about the cinematography is that I, I don't understand some shots he used. Mm-hmm. When Sharon Tate's at the window of the Bruins Theater, Yeah, he, he uses the same close-up tilted angle shot that he uses when Cliff is talking to Squeaky at the Spawn Ranch. It's like such an off-putting, disturbing shot. I don't understand the... It, it like, put me in a, a, a defensive state when I'm watching this it's, beautiful woman just trying to gloat about being in a movie. Yes. It's also like the Wizard of Oz with the guy, like, opening up the little door. Right. Yelling at you not to yeah. come in or you can't come in. It's like the <laughs> gatekeeper. It's it's bizarre. And I agree with you. I think he's playing with your nerves in all these yeah. things. Uh, it was, but that one especially, I just didn't... It seemed, for a guy that's a master of cinematography, I, that seems so out of place and disturbingly out of place. And I still don't understand the relevance of it or what he was trying to say by it. Maybe that's a me problem, but that kind of was off-putting. The second thing I'll say is... As far as the cinematography overall, I was almost more impressed by the work, I assume it was Richardson as well, What that was done with the camera within the things, the shows and movies we saw in the movie than in this movie itself. So much better than the actual shows. Right. So like if you watch Lancer, I know he oh, yeah. mimicked 
I watched like five minutes. I couldn't go any further with it. It's on YouTube. It's the greatest 50s and 60s shows ever because the real shows from the 50s and 60s right. that he's been Tarantino's making. version. Right, exactly. Some of the footage from FBI was like my favorite of the film. Like the, the broken glass stuff. And how, yeah, right, that scene, is spe- that shot especially, and how great. I mean, Tarantino, <laughs> talking about a guy that just can write a compliment for himself, make sure that Cliff comments on that shot being a spectacular one so you take notice of it on rewatch. You have the guys watching the show. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about an Oscar lens for cinematography. Last year, Roma won, Cold War favorite, Never Look Away, A Star is Born. Is this on the level of last year's nominees? Mark? It's not Roma. No. I don't think it's Roma. I, I don't know. The, the You know, the favorite was helped out by, by its surrounding and its setting. Tarantino had to make the setting for this one, so if you want to argue on that, I can understand it. All those were unique. Like Cold War, you had the long-distance shot. Sure. The favorite, you had the fisheye lens. Never Look Away, I, ha- I still haven't seen that. I haven't either. But, but A Star is Born, it's on the level of A Star is Born, I'd say. Right, but that's only because I don't think A Star is Born was spectacular in its cinematography, was it? But it's one of those where it's really strong throughout. Yeah. I would say Tarantino's got some signature shots. I can be talked, uh, yeah, I can be talked into a, a cinematography nomination for Tarantino. And I just thought of the fact that basically you have Margot Robbie, Sharon Tate. She's going to watch an audience watch her movie. I mean, that's not a spoiler. She's going to watch an audience watch her movie. It's akin to a story that Quentin Tarantino really experienced and continually experiences. Well, not only that one story, but he's done that. I mean, he's gone to. Yeah openings of his shows and he yeah and he talked about a specific story right. where him and his girlfriend went to see true romance at the bruin right and he had this scene play Trying out talk his way into it yeah <laughs> so it's, i think that's you know you're, you're nervous is what i'm saying like right. tarantino's nervous sharon tate's nervous Maybe so that's what it is, yeah. for them to put you at ease or to make you nervous it makes sense all right editing obviously tarantino is just having a blast mimicking all of the tropes from the old tv shows mm-hmm. that he creates and that's really a lot of fun because a lot of it's awesomely bad. <laughs> you know, uh, yes. <laughs> to say the least about it, yes. Leonardo DiCaprio is a fish out of water in those scenes. And it's great. I know we're going to talk about performance, and that's not what the focus is on now, but Leo playing a guy who needs to be bad at things, I don't know how he's able to play bad so believably for a guy that's never been bad on screen in, in his entire life. What's eating Gilbert Grape? <laughs> Okay. Leo as a younger actor has struggled, in my opinion. I go back and watch the Basketball Diaries. I know people like it because it's an over-the-top performance, and some if you, those are okay. those are love them or hate them performances. But even even still, right? That's twenty-five years ago, thirty years ago. He's channeling his younger actor that he can stuff, still tap you know? into that and play it out so believably. He's gotten better since yeah. working for Scorsese so much without and, question. And Tarantino and obviously a lot of the great directors out there. Mike, the Bruce Lee Cliff Booth scene that you know of in the trailer, it's one shot for most of it. Until you get a stunt. Until you get a stunt, you don't get a cut. That's insane. It's so long. Yeah. That's just Tarantino playing playing games like he does with a camera all the time. I mean, he can do whatever he wants, and he does... Speaking of playing games and speaking of the editing, he does things that he gets away with things and we let him get away with things that I don't understand why we do. Like mm-hmm. the the Kurt Russell voiceover that happens a couple times, <laughs> it happens out of nowhere and we just accept it. Timothy Oliphant goes from talking to Leonardo DiCaprio to a scene cut where he's wearing a hat all of a sudden out of nowhere with no transition and we just accept it because it's this guy doing his... Like he plays games with editing. It's almost to the point where Tarantino's like thumbing his nose at us saying, I can do whatever I want and you're just going to accept it because I've done enough to build up that kind of cachet. And the pacing of this film is so slow at times that you notice all these tricks. Right. And we've seen it so many times that we notice them. So that, that it was fascinating. Let's talk about pacing for a minute. You have an issue with this much more than I do. I do. 
I think Tim Roth got cut, James Marsden got cut, Burt Reynolds was supposed to be a younger character in this, played by James Marsden. That scene got cut. I wonder if Sally Menke's still involved here, if he would have trimmed these scenes down a little bit. I do think there's some superfluous scenes. Inarguably some superflu- superfluities. Uh, I mean, now, by that logic, the movie is superfluous. <laughs> no, I think to the plot of the movie, okay. there are superfluous scenes. I don't disagree. For I worth. don't necessarily dislike all of them, though. I like some of this. So I'm a hypocrite, because when we argued a couple days ago, like this scene was superfluous, that scene wasn't. Right? We argued about these mm-hmm. before we recorded MMOW. Now I'm like, I still enjoyed that scene. <laughs> Right. Even though it's totally superfluous. But that's why he languished in it. Because he knows you're enjoying hanging out with these characters. It's like, I mean, Mike, because these, he characters, these characters yeah. don't do anything. Right? Like, this is this is a day-in-the-life movie. Yeah. He said so himself. This is just two days in these people's lives. They don't really have arcs, per se. Nothing really gets accomplished or fulfilled. I, here's the thing. Like, I did break down the script. I put it against some of the formulas that I used. And I'll talk about this in uh, spoilers, but it does fit a lot of the a lot of the three act structure. Oh sure, sure paradigms. It really does. It does. I'm... So I agree with you on the one yeah. hand. Like he stretches everything out. The fun and game section is very long. The whatever you want to call it, the movie save is the, the cat, fun and so, game section. The midpoint, and, yeah. The, the A and B story collision. All of those things that you, you're taught in screenwriting school, or if you read a Save the Cat, or mm-hmm. you know Robert McKee book, all those things are here in this story. It's just like bigger version of it. Uh, again, it's something we're going to dive more into and it's going to be an argument that Mike and I have in spoilers, so stay tuned for that. But You're kind of winning me over is what I'm trying to say. I, I hear you. I argument. hear you, but I'm just not going to take that as a win until I, I, <laughs> you say I was right. All right, so editing, Mike. Last, last year's editing winner was Bohemian Rhapsody. We had Black Klansman, The Favorite, Green Book, and Vice all nominated. My take on this is strictly if you want to say that this doesn't make the cut on editing alone strictly from an oscars puzzle standpoint because i think this is going to be such a heavy contender for best picture and the correlation between an editing nomination and a best picture winner is in there for the last 30 something years like we've talked about yeah i would be surprised if this doesn't get an editing nomination i will forecast along with you and say that it probably gets it I don't think it should get it. Like, I wouldn't put it in this five. And I don't like Bo Rap. And I thought the editing was pretty spectacular in that one. And I think the editing, in slower movies like Black Klansman and The Favorite, those were, that was a smoother job. And I don't know if you count the getting rid of the fluff as part of the editing, like trimming down a scene as right. part of the editing. That's in the back of my mind. And I can't help but kind of. Is, is restraint part of. Yeah, talk you know, about the final cut. Talk about the decisions right. he made. Like, this could have easily been 221 minutes, or two hours, 21 it's minutes. It's not the level of Green Book's editing, no? 241. Green Book was smooth. It was really smooth. I watched it again. It, it is. It is you just think just, you So you just think the language, the, the scenes that he does language in this are just too much, and he should have been. A little bit. Okay. That's I, that would be my argument, but I won't be surprised if it gets not nomination because of all the the showiness. Right, like you got montages in this movie that are as good as anything I've ever seen. Leo sings <laughs> is where I'll land on that, and it goes in perfectly with this movie. Right, and you know he sings. It's <laughs> right. in the trailer. It's in the, it's in. All right, production design, Mike. They shut down Hollywood Boulevard for a few nights. This is the craziest story I've ever heard. So they shut down Hollywood Boulevard, going one way for two nights, then going the other way for another two nights. He talked about this in the Kimmel interview as well. What? <laughs> they DH'd it all without CGI. Yeah. They did practical effects and practical storefronts. And 
What are you talking about? They brought in all the old cars. They brought in all the old costumes. They shut down another highway. They put it. They just filled it with all the old cars. So that scene you see of Pitt going on the highway when he's got Margaret Qualley in his passenger seat, not giving anything away again with that, but that's all old cars. It's all real. It's all practical. First of all, how do you do this for $90 million? This sounds like it should be a $200 million budget. Is this the extraordinary creative control that you were talking about before with Sony? Oh, by the way, I need to <laughs> shut down Hollywood Boulevard for a week. We'll make it happen for you, Quentin. We'll pull every trick and every favor we, ha- we have at our disposal. We'll and pull, if you're not we'll familiar, even if you've never been to L.A., Hollywood Boulevard, if you've ever watched Jimmy Kimmel, that street is Hollywood Boulevard, where he shows his outside, yeah. where all the tourists are walking by nonstop all day long. I mean, he's got the cameos from all those restaurants, you know, all the establishing shots of the restaurants and a montage, which is incredible. You get to go into the actual restaurants, and then you're on location at a few huge settings that are totally, you know, notable and have always been famous. And his his love and care about Hollywood, this truly is a love letter. The love, like, Hollywood comes to life when the neon signs all go bright, right? And he takes the time to show you that. You could say it's cinematography or editing, too, but... The production design, this is the first category we're talking about where, for me, for this movie, I will be offended if this doesn't get a nomination. This has to be nominated for production design because you're in Hollywood in 1969 throughout this movie. It's a time machine. Yeah. It's a time machine back to it. Never mind the production design for The Lancer Show, for Bounting Law, yeah. for FBI. Bounty Law! And the fact that they created, recreated. They didn't go on location to Cielo Drive, to the Sharon Tate house. They recreated that setting. That's it's incredible. I mean, it's it's all it's all just nuts. Uh, and and again, with editing, production design, cinematography, we haven't even touched on something about the Great Escape, which is in this movie, which we may get to at True. some point. Now, the final thing, the homes for Rick and Cliff and Sharon. So many details that you notice upon every viewing. Mike, the freaking dog food. The dog food is my favorite thing in this movie. We're going to talk about it in spoilers. The dog food, though. Some woman in my theater, without spoiling, I'll tease this, but she said, oh, what's that say on the can? Good food for dogs? I'm like, oh, you poor, poor thing. Yeah. (laughs) so good. Uh, So Oscar Lens, production design last year went to Black Panther. Uh, Proper. The the favorite first man, Mary Poppins Returns in Roma. That's a pretty big year for production design honestly it was now roma it's all in black and white it's very good yeah and i think you know there was a lot of well roma probably loses points for the same reason yeah. that the favorite would lose points right you're on location in you're on places. location you, the, the setting is kind of doing the work for you it's a niche thing where not, th- not to say it doesn't well, yeah. take talent obviously but roma's a niche thing because like all right it's actually alfonso Cuarón's childhood bedroom recreated kind right. of thing this is that same level of detail but blown up but it's also a weird thing this movie feels like a small town or this this hollywood feels like a small town to me like in my brain when i think of hollywood i think of the big mountain and the hollywood sign Mm -hmm. i think of a metropolis because i'm basically thinking of los angeles right Right. i'm thinking of of a movie industry town that is just built up i'm not thinking of hollywood boulevard and all these suburbs and all the hills where everybody lives and then there's like a main drag where everybody goes and hangs out with all these restaurants. And I'm, it, it felt more like a small town than it did a big city. It's probably our shortcoming because you do get the, the sense, and whether it's because of movies, I guess with celebrities now being more accessible than ever via Twitter and Instagram, we kind of get this too, but like, never mind the idea of what the definition of celebrity even is anymore <laughs> with YouTube and Instagram, but whatever. Um, a lot of people know everyone anyway and even if you look at some of these interviews brad pitt and leo discuss in every interview though they've never worked together they kind of ran in the same circles and had the same experiences Mm -hmm. so maybe hollywood is 
smaller than we give it credit for anyway because we're just some country bumpkins from Connecticut. We know? are. Right. And we love that about it. Right. So I think this is worthy of production design at the end of the day. Uh, I think you yeah. agree. <laughs> it has to be. It better be. Costume design, purposely bad at times, scary at other times, fun and slick. What's and the most iconic costume from this movie to you? Oh. In 15 years, we look back and think about what's upon a time in Hollywood. What are we thinking of? Probably Brad Pitt. Is it's got to be that Brad Pitt yellow shirt. The yellow shirt. The I mean, moccasins. He's got the, you know, the Canadian tuxedo. The mo- <laughs> yeah, the, the moccasins. Canadian tuxedo. If it's not Sharon Tate with the white skirt, the high the pencil boots. pencil skirt, yeah. That's another the, iconic uh, The black. Uh, Leo with the yellow turtleneck and the brown blazer over it. I mean, there's a lot of looks from this that are. And then the Manson family. Yeah. Margaret Qualley. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. And that's, we're kind of running down lists of why I think costume design may be a possibility. It's not something you're going to think of when you're thinking of this at first blush. But Tarantino has a history. The closer we've gotten to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the more we've actually commented on his costumes have gotten better and better and better. This might be the crescendo. And the costumes in the airports scenes are my absolute favorite. In those montages, what Leo's wearing, what the girl who's with him's wearing, what Francesca, the Francesca outfit. I think it's my brother turned to me. He's like, "Is that just totally crocheted?" I love that outfit so much. (laughs) That was like my favorite of all time. And oh my god, to have a slow motion dance, not dance, walking. So, yeah. you know song with the with the soundtrack that you get oh my god i would agree with you i think these costumes are awards worthy last year we had black panther these aren't black panther no because all the all the detail on right. those yeah i would agree buster scruggs yes the favorite uh, Probably. it's, a different it's close yeah i mean it depends on what you value mary poppins returns had some damn good costumes yeah, uh mary queen of scott so look this could get boxed out if you got old school timey period pieces yeah, if it's the academy is going to do what the academy has historically done and gone towards the king little and pretty women. and pretty i keep calling it pretty women for the love of god little women uh then if we do a retrospective for pretty woman <laughs> before little women we're idiots yes. but that would be if you were the programmer it's no, um, a cheap shot but yes if the academy goes that way as they've done historically then this could find its way on the outside end Imagine if you went into Little Women thinking, it was, thinking it was a remake of Julia Roberts' Pretty Woman. Who's Richard Gere? I thought Chalamet was Richard Gere. That's such a stupid joke to touch something on. I don't think Jason Alexander's in this at all. Meryl Streep? Why is she in here? All right, stunts. Zoe Bell, stunt coordinator on this film. She's also in the movie. It's phenomenal. I want to just mention something from a a great 15-minute interview that was out on uh, THR. I I just loved it so much because she talked about, in past movies, Tarantino would be like, let's do this. And she just, like, in her very fun nodding really fast thing, she's like, let's do it. (laughs) And now, as a stunt coordinator, she would tell Tarantino, I don't know, I have to do all these checks. And she was like, it was like being an adult stunt person for the first time in the best possible way. Take all that in a New Zealand yeah, accent. Girls all grown up. She's crushing it. And yeah, there's awesome. a couple of stunts in this movie that are incredible. Like yep. I don't know how she pulls them off. Yes. That said, there's one scene where Brad Pitt gets kicked in the chest. It looks like the fakest thing I've ever seen in my life. I was uh, taken aback. Oh, really? By, yeah. To me, anyway, it looked like there was the impact, and then a set, a beat, and yeah. then Brad Pitt goes flying. Yeah, I don't know if that's on purpose. Were they trying to shoot it like something old time? Wow, it, we're still wondering about things after three watches apiece. Right. Yeah, maybe that wasn't great. Right. That's me watching it three it's times and cherry picking. Jarring because you have the one shot that goes for a while, and then that was your first cut because right. it's a stunt. Right. Yeah. 
makes some sense. So but, again, and again, that's just me being a dick and nitpicking. But well, I, I, I thought it was good on stunts. The, when yeah, they, on yeah. the whole, absolutely great stunt work throughout this movie. All right, so that was sight. Let's get into sound here. What made Quentin dance? The answer is all of it. What made us dance? The answer is all of it. What made Margot Robbie, Sharon Tate dance? The answer, Mike, is all of it. But we want to go through it. <laughs> You're playing it on your phone right now. <laughs> <laughs> Were you still rolling? I listen to the soundtrack like crazy. I bought this immediately. It's uh, on I YouTube. still buy it on on uh, iTunes because folks, I'm a stupid person. That's fine. And you're right. You're a good patron <laughs> of the arts. It's on YouTube in full. There's a pl- pl- not even a playlist. It's one video on YouTube, and it's on Spotify. Most of it. How does this guy? Not only it's one thing to score a film using music we all know and music that's been done historically, yeah. and not original songs. It's another thing to completely and routinely reintroduce once popular songs that have gone by the wayside and been lost in history and just showcase them as the awesome songs they are, which he does eight times in this movie, conservatively. Can you imagine how enjoyable that must be for someone who lived through the 60s like that? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, we, we hear an old cut from... Uh, a song that like the, the 90s 90s yeah. and early 2000s <laughs> and we would go bonkers right. for I, I, whoever has lived through that time period they got to be nuts over this oh my mother was I, I saw this the third time i took her with me and she was going crazy not only that but some of the commercials they used the ones that you didn't make <laughs> up the the tv shows yeah That's good you could see it all over their faces they, but it's i don't know how he's so in tune with giving music their own character kind of like yeah. he makes certain songs so ingrained in some of his scenes not least of which i mean i've been singing neil diamond and that the the other uh yes. give me some loving song non-stop ever since los because- bravos neil diamond's brother loves traveling salvation show mike what i love most about those two in particular they're in the trailer they sell your movie they yeah. market your movie those two songs right we were loving those mm-hmm. trailers they're actually in the movie yeah just like jordan peele actually put i've got five right. on it, in the movie that's something that i really really love because if you're gonna make me fall in love with your movie based on its marketing give me the same deliver music. yeah deliver and they totally do i would add to that summertime by billy stewart yeah jose feliciano's california dreaming Deep Purple, there's a couple songs, Kentucky Woman and Hush, Bob Seeger, Ramblin' Gamblin' Man, Joe Cocker's The Letter, we have Treat Her Right by Roy Head and the Traits. I mean, you keep me hanging on, the remake by Vanilla Fudge, which was During the finale. intricate to the finale. Awesome. Great setup. Awesome. Son of a Lovin' Man by Buchanan Brothers might be my favorite usage in the movie. Oh my god. I mean, it, it, we're not giving anything away, that plays during a dance sequence, it's Amazing. With an overhead shot of that dance floor, maybe my favorite shot of the movie, Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel worked. That's something that happened too quickly for me to even give it the proper weight because you don't really know what's coming yet. You have to rewatch it, and when you rewatch it, that jumps out at you. But the treat her right in the first airport montage, and then the montage with the Rolling Stones out of time. Yeah. My favorite thing, and it almost brought me to tears yeah. on, the, on, the, on the second and third watch because I just thought it was so damn good. Tarantino knows exactly how to use these songs, and it makes you feel for these characters with, with the, the usage of yeah, it. Yeah, it makes I, sense. It's it's a spectacular job. The joke I've been making is that if there was anything original about this soundtrack and score, I would say it's worthy of best original score. But 
I think it's also worthy of criticism that apparently in Tarantino's 1969 Hollywood, and for a majority of the right. songs playing in his 1969 Hollywood, apparently black people just didn't exist. That's worth pointing out. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot, you know, there's there's some there's some black singers white on the soundtrack, but this is, this is heavily white, heavily white actors, heavily white extras. It's a problem if you want to go down that road. I mean, there's not representation at all throughout this movie. There's not representation. Whether in the singing or in the acting. Gender representation in this movie. Sure like, this movie's about two guys, and you have a specter of Sharon Tate no, it's in not, the film. Yeah, it doesn't right? purport to be anything other than that. Yeah. So is that a bad thing right. if, to make a movie about two guys? If right. you make Lord of the Flies via Luca Guadagnino and it's about a group of kid, you know, boys, is that wrong? Right. So, I mean, should every movie be everything to everybody, like an MCU film, and have representation everywhere? The the issue is, of course, movies were all like this mm-hmm. for so damn long for a hundred years. Yeah, for a hundred years. And just recently, we're, we're making movies for more people. Right. So, I, you know, I don't even know that I necessarily buy it as a criticism, but you, if you're going to criticize this movie and be a critique, you got to point it out. Got to point it out. Makes some sense. And it, I, I don't begrudge anybody for being pissed off. No, me either. I don't know at all. If they're not represented right. in this film, it's a blockbuster film. It's a Sony release, major summer release. And if we're talking about Oscars, it's going to be interesting to see if that has any translation with the Widening Academy because the Academy's gone out of its way yes. to bring in all these new people that are representative across mm-hmm. the board in, in gender gender equality, racial equality. <laughs> this is a movie about two 40-year-old white guys. Right. So it's going to be interesting yeah. to see how that plays. And 100 years leading up to it, we've said it a thousand times, most movies were about 40-year-old white guys. Not, Especially in the 80s. Right. All that said... <laughs> We pride ourselves on being equal opportunity people here. I personally had no issue with that. It's it's a good movie. Right. And you, you talk about it as a good movie for being the, a good movie about its subject. That's fine. Right. And I don't think it's a bad thing that a 50-year-old guy makes a movie about 40-year-old guys. Agree. Agree. Yeah, I, I, I co-sign. That's and not wrong. Is that our ignorance? <laughs> Just because we're two 30-year-old white guys? Yeah, I mean... Sh- Maybe. Could be. Review of performances, Mike. Leo is incredible. And he's best actor worthy, in my opinion. The only question I have is that is this Leo's best work? That's the only question I have. He's an unhinged, insecure actor just slowly having a nervous breakdown in this movie. And yet, he's pulling it together to act through scenes. He's got addiction problems. The guy can't speak unless the camera's on, this character. He stutters. Unless he is, (laughs) yeah, unless he's on camera. It's 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 incredible. So let's go right into the Oscar lens on him, Mike. Mid year report. We I mentioned Tom Hanks, Antonio Banderas, and Eddie Murphy. You mentioned yeah, Leo. You're, you're taking Hanks from me is going to make me look like a genius because I defaulted <laughs> to picking Leo you in that circumstance. Leo is the front runner. You had Daniel Kaluuya from Queen and Slim and Jonathan Price yeah. from The Pope as your honorable mentions or likely nominee there. Last year, Rami Malek, Bale, Willem Dafoe, Viggo Mortensen, Bradley Cooper. And I would say so far this year, what we've had was Taron Edgerton from Rocket Man, mm-hmm. Arts from The Mustang, Jamie Bell from Skin, which I just saw, High Life's Robert Pattinson, Extremely Wicked and Shockingly Cute. I saw that title from <laughs> the last podcast on the left. Jesus. Zach Efron. Uh, we had uh, Eisenberg in The Art of Self-Defense, McConaughey in The Beach Bum. Where do I mean, he's got to be atop all these lists? There's not. I mean, there's no no competition for him right I mean, now. You could say maybe Tom Hanks is gonna. Yeah, that, based well, on the trailer, that's where I land on it is that the biggest competition for him, I don't think we've seen yet. Because if that's the list, no offense to Taron Egerton, Sean Arts, Bell, any of those guys, 
this isn't in the same league as those. This is heads and shoulders above. And to me, I honestly believe maybe Wolf of Wall Street, this might be Leo's best performance ever. Mm-hmm. Revenant included, which he won the Oscar for. Pound for pound, I would agree with yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, Wolf of Wall Street, he's over the top, and he's in that whole movie the whole time. Right. He's in every scene. The Departed, I would, uh, dramatic performances go, one of my favorites for Leo. And then, of course, The Revenant, again, it's a movie where he is in every scene right. just about, you know, so the, pound for pound, like, he's one of, it feels almost like an ensemble piece, even though that this is his story, in my opinion. It's yeah. a phenomenal ensemble. And, and Tarantino and, says, this is his story, this is Rick's story. Right, and I'm kind of surprised to see, we went into this not really knowing, well, who's going to be the Who's lead? the star? Right, yeah. who's, the, who's number one? Who's A1? And then in the fallout, Ever, you know, the soundtrack, the poster now has gotten play. It's Leo's picture above everybody else's. Mm-hmm. He clearly is going to be, and like you said, Tarantino even said this is Rick's picture. Clearly Leo's going to be the lead here. And I, he's I going to be so. the guy that qualifies as the lead acting candidate. Tarantino wouldn't allow for anything else, right? He right. wouldn't allow him to be in the sporting categories here, would he? I mean, if but Alvin not, Candy right. wasn't. Yeah. If Daniel Kaluuya comes out and knocks it out of the park, he's going to win, no doubt about it. Maybe Sony will do some funny business. How can and put anyone him... be, ahead, be a sure thing over this performance, right. though? At, I mean, at worst right now, I think we have a two-headed race, Yeah, depending on what happens. Him and Hanks at the moment. I mean, Antonio Banderas might surprise us. Like I just said, Daniel Kaluuya... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I just I agree can't see any performance being so much better than this one. This is this guy. What he does in this movie is just—it's nice to see Leo fully commit to to a very non-Leo character. I don't think that I've ever seen him play so vulnerable, vulnerable, open, yeah. exposed, worried, insecure. He's all <laughs> of these things, and yet when the camera goes on, he's at one point horrible acting. Then he beats himself up. And then he's literally a cowboy returning to the shootout. You see that arc in the trailers. I, I, that is a slight spoiler, but and I'm upset that that arc was in the trailer. Are you? I don't think the way it delivered. I was fine. I loved it in the trailer. I loved the way it delivered. I'm just. I wish I didn't know that. Like that's okay. a big payoff in the middle of the movie. Whatever. It's really good. Yes, Leonardo DiCaprio is our front runner right now, and he probably will be throughout award season. Let's move on to Brad Pitt. So that would put Pitt in the supporting actor category, no? And I think he belongs there, yeah, based on the fundamentals casting structure of the of the story. He's a strange character. To say the least. He's one that I don't know if the Academy is going to like. I, we can't get into spoilers, but I liked his performance a lot. There's more of the stoic performance, mm-hmm. though, from Pitt in this movie. He's got to go supporting. He borders on McConaughey here. Like From a dazed and confused McConaughey, right. laid okay. back, yeah. you know, just kind of going with the flow, doing whatever. He's got all these affectations, though, which is interesting. And oh, he's a slight. highly capable, yeah, yeah, highly, highly capable guy. All right, so let's talk about our mid-year reports. I had Pitt, you had. Hopkins as yeah, your front runner from the Pope. I had a likely nom for Willem Dafoe from the last thing he wanted. You had Gary Oldman from the Laundromat, and then for wild cards, I had Taika Waititi from Jojo Rabbit. You had Joe Pesci from The Irish. Still got my fingers crossed for that one. <laughs> last year, uh, Mahershala Ali won it for Green Book. Adam Which was a, b- a phenomenal yeah, performance. That was a no-brainer. Adam Driver, Sam Elliott, Sam Rockwell, Richard E. Grant were the other nominees so far this year. I'm stretching to say Robert Downey Jr. from Endgame gets in here, Winston Duke from us. Alessandro Nivola was awesome in The Art of Self-Defense, but I'm stretching for names Can you imagine if they put Robert Downey Jr. from Endgame in the supporting actor category? It's such an ensemble. There's like 50 main Hollywood stars in the movie. He is Iron Man. (laughs) 
there's so many stars <laughs> of the movie, you could make the argument. Screen time. There wise, would be an uproar. <laughs> screen time wise, it's definitely all right. But you're you're probably right. Story wise, Mike, where does Brad Pitt land right now? Is he atop the list? Performance based on what these actors do in their roles, yes. But you're right. There's plenty of reason to question whether the Academy would reward this type of performance. We've seen this type of performance get neglected in the past. So I could totally, I totally see the red flags and the Mm -hmm. landmines with this performance. No question. All right, let's move on to Margot Robbie supporting actress. I'm not surprised she took this role. This is a glorious part. She's the light of the film. Like she says it, she's absolutely necessary to the plot of the film. Mm -hmm. I'm in awe of this person because the movie pays tribute to Sharon Tate as this angelic presence. When Tarantino was interviewed to follow up the whole New York Times, I reject your hypothesis, snapping. And it kind of does feel like a snapping in retrospect, even though, all right, fine, he was mad. Sharon Tate is used really well in this movie. Do you come away with this movie just in love with, just totally respectful for the career of Sharon Tate, the person that she was? I wonder... You know, if you're going to argue about counting lines of dialogue these characters have, like some people have done and tried to make an issue over, then yeah, you're going to see that she probably has less speaking lines than the other two leads. Fine, if that's what the hill you want to die on, I don't agree. If representation is the be-all or end-all for a movie like this, and and now we're speaking from on top of the horse here, right? Of course. We're we're white guys, we're talking about a movie about white guys. But this is a movie about white guys. Right. And and I wonder... Knowing the role that Sharon Tate had in this movie, if Tarantino needed to cast, whether it was Jennifer Lawrence, even though she wasn't rumored to play Sharon Tate and was kind of uh, separated from that role, even when she was first rumored to be attached to it, or whether it was Margot Robbie, whoever he decided, if he needed the A-lister of A-lister because it was his imperative to not only honor Sharon Tate, which he did get the okay from her family to portray her in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and her sister's blessing, I believe, but not only to honor her, but to reintroduce her. And is it as effective... Without getting into what he actually did, we'll save that for spoilers, but is it is what he did as effective, honoring Sharon Tate's memory and reintroducing her to a new generation, if not for casting such a magnanimous personality like Margot Robbie, such a widely talented and wickedly talented actress like we've seen, staunch feminist, feministic hero, producer in her own right, going to be a director someday most likely, I wonder if that was all into the thinking in the casting anyway. I need somebody that's the A-lister of A-lister to honor this woman. And to do it without a lot of dialogue. Right. To do it in montage. To do it in dancing scenes. Exactly. To to show you that that, that angelic presence in many ways. And to show you what a just like a genuine person she was by all accounts. Mm -hmm. And you, I watched all those documentaries, and there's never a bad thing said about her. Yeah, she was really, you know, feisty in her career, but who isn't out there in Hollywood? Of course. And so she was making smart decisions, and we see a lot of her career play out on screen. But it's also kind of respectful in the fact that, all right, we can tell a story about this character, this beloved character, but how can you know this character? She only had such a brief time in the spotlight, in a way. It would be hard if you made a movie about Sharon Tate. It would be you'd be presuming a lot. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, it's difficult, right? Because I don't think... I, that's so full of landmines. And ca- and do not, you want to see but Quentin Tarantino's Sharon Tate-centric right, movie? Right. Like, I mean, that would be you? presumptuous for him, I would I, say. Yeah, I would say no, and I think there was a lot of fear into that going in, but it, what we got was an homage. Right. A complete honoring of... I mean, he basically made a statue out of Sharon Tate's career and what should have been her career, and... 
I knew a lot about the Manson family and the murders going in, just because I've always been fascinated with that whole cult mentality, but I didn't know she was like on the cusp of stardom like she was. Yeah. And that was something that was reintroduced that was introduced to me. I was not aware of. So I I think it was handled in, in as respectful a way as you could have hoped in this movie. Joelle Monique makes a great argument on The Hollywood Reporter. It's an incredible article. Grace Randolph, in her YouTube videos, she makes an argument for a different perspective than we have, and they made a lot of great points. I don't think what we're saying just totally disagrees with them. I don't think it's a mutually exclusive argument. They make a lot of good points. Tarantino, I would probably be mad if Tarantino just tried to make a movie about Sharon Tate. This is my, where I land at the end of the day here. God, it would be so chock full. It'd be of weird. Minds. It'd be so, it'd be especially weird. on the heels of he's the not Me capable Too of doing that. He knows his it. involvement. I mean, it'd be it'd just be. You wouldn't have an Oscars movie. Right. I, I can tell you that. I Mary mean, Heron should make that movie. Greta Gerwig right. should make that movie because she's in Hollywood. Right. For Christ's sake, no, not. But so, if we have that mentality, doesn't it make sense that he's making the movie about the forty-year-old white dudes? It does because we opinion. don't want him to make that movie about Sharon Tate. Yeah, it totally does, in my opinion. We'll talk about it uh, in spoilers, break it down a little more thoroughly. Let's go look at supporting actress here. Annette Bening was my front runner. Meryl Streep was yours. Jennifer Hudson was both our likely nom for Cats. I don't know if we're going to be right uh, about I mean, that. That may be an oversight. <laughs> the visual effects might just disqualify yeah. her, even though the singing is tremendous. Maggie Smith was my wild card. Alana Yubach yeah, it depends, was yours. Yeah, it depends on how much time she gets in that Roger Ailes movie, yeah. So last year, Regina King won for If Beale Street Could Talk. Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz were nominated from The Favorite. Amy Adams from Vice. Marina De Tavera from Roma. Is this performance up with those? I would say no at the end of the you day. You could make arguments for it. It's a totally different kind of performance right. without dialogue. I, and she's clearly, she truly is the light of the movie. She's yeah. also the saving grace at a certain point. Like, she's, she's a big deal in the movie. She's the stakes. Right. Her, so, that's why your character is so pivotal to the plot. Right. So you can, there's arguments to be made. Would I do, I mean, I judge them on performances, so do I think this is an Oscar-worthy performance? I would say no right now, but also we don't have a lot of options in this category, surprisingly yet. Not yet. Uh, so far this year, all I could pinpoint is Beanie Feldstein right. from Booksmart and Hilary Swank from I Am Mother. I, I don't see that many right. more. At the moment, we're like we got great performances yet to come with Annette Benning, etc. Meryl Streep, yeah, not yet. She's probably in the lead for me right now. Yeah, she is right on my on my dock. So, yeah, I'd agree with you. Let's move into the uh, script thoughts here. So, as much of a screenwriting showcase that all Tarantino movies are. I feel like this is more of a directorial driven film for my money. Like I feel like he's showing off with what he's doing as a director more than he is as a screenwriter. I can see how you say that. I don't think I have a feeling either way because I, to me it's always been just one and the same anyway because he's so involved in every part of the process with his films anyway right yeah. down to being basically a second-hand DP, director of photography. So that's fine that you have that opinion with, as far as I'm concerned. Now, I did mention my issue with the movie. It's a little bloated and I do think that they could have trimmed it down. But like I said, it hits all the major beats. That I mentioned in a five-act, a five-part, three-act structure, which still confuses me, <laughs> even though I think it does exist for storytellers. Original screenplay last year, Mike Green Book won the favorite first reform. Roma and Vice were also nominated. We talked about it in our mid-year Oscar report. I had we both had uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a front runner. I don't know if I'd say it's still a front runner. 
I had Queen and Slim as my likely nom. You had A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Our wild cards were Harriet and The Last Black Man in San Francisco. We mentioned a bunch of others. This is going to be a big category this year. So it comes down to, again, it's kind of like the supporting actress category. Is it the front runner because there's just not a lot out there yet? Like, what, what's what's a, Us? What's it up against? Booksmart? So I us, put this over either one of those. Booksmart, Midsummer, Plus One. Yeah, none of these feel like obvious nominations. Right. So, look, <laughs> you're talking about Tarantino, so he's going to get some kind of credit with the screenwriting anyway. I think you're probably proper in saying that this is more directorial feature only because I think he wants the director Oscar, right? I mean, given the choice, whether you get your third original screenplay Oscar or your first director Oscar, I think he wants that for his career. And he's talked about wanting the Oscar for either people in his performances or for his own legacy yeah. in various interviews throughout his career. He might get it this year. Because I, I think in the director's chair, he's doing so many crazy things, and Leo's probably got the Leo's going to drag him to it, yeah. So this that's film, kind of how I feel, too. This film may not win Best Picture. It's probably going to be the front runner for those two. I would agree. We'll see. I would agree. So to finish up non-spoiler script thoughts, there's a bunch of homages here. So I got kind of three groups of homages. First of all, the Manson family storyline. The girls, Manson family girls, sing Always is Always Forever. This is a song written by Charlie Manson. A different version of that song was sung at court during mm-hmm. his during his trial. Yeah. Take it for what it's worth, but I did a lot of research, and I think they nailed a lot of the details about the Manson family. Like there's homages to small little details of that case, and various things from various people that Tarantino puts in this movie. Yeah, he's he's very true to life. This is a point Chris Ryan made during uh, the the big picture recap too. Mm-hmm. He's very true to life with a lot of little things, and then he kind of does he plays around with bigger things. He he does play around with bigger things. Like he has different people in the the walk mm-hmm. up to the mm-hmm. state house. Tex, Sadie, and Katie are there, but then somebody else is not there. Right. That's that's fascinating. I wonder if the Margaret Qualley character was supposed to be that somebody else, but that he didn't go with that. He just kind of wrote that person out. That person's trying to get paroled right now, the real person. As for the Sharon Tate Polanski storyline, you had Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen from The Great Escape, gets a major reference in this movie, tells a major backstory anecdote. And I couldn't understand why, so I did some research, and it turns out Steve McQueen was Jay Sebring's right-hand man. He actually yeah. gave the eulogy at Jay Sebring's funeral, yeah. which was the same day as Sharon Tate's, unfortunately. So Tarant- Again, Tarantino really diving into yeah. the research here. You got a few scenes from Sharon Tate, Dean Martin film The Wrecking Crew, which is, We're going to fight about that. Yeah, we might fight about <laughs> it. Uh, Bruce Lee is a big part of the film, as you know, and I was shocked to learn this, Mike. This is crazy. Roman Polanski thought Bruce Lee murdered those four people. I saw you had this. This is not a conspiracy theory I've ever seen. I can't get over it. Bruce Lee lost his glasses at the Tate house. Roman Polanski found the glasses, and the same big thing, the MacGuffin or whatever, the red herring thing from Chinatown was what actually happened with Bruce Lee, except it went the other way. The result of it was the other way. He actually wrote Bruce Lee off, or he disqualified him as a suspect, because Polanski's doing his own investigation, because this went on for months, where they didn't know who killed Sharon Tate, Mm -hmm. and Polanski was losing his mind. Unreal that that's true. That's nuts. It's not anything I've heard before. That's crazy. (laughs) 
Uh, Tarantino also had the name of Polanski's dog and Sharon Tate's dog, Dr. Saperstein, <laughs> yeah. was the therapist character in Rosemary's Baby, and that was the actual name of the dog. Yeah, uh, very cute. Very, and he, this is all stuff Tarantino knows, right? He grew up in, in the 60s Hollywood. Of course, this is his real-life stuff. Like we said, Lancer was a real TV show. Luke Perry plays a real actor that was on that TV show. Timothy Oliphant plays a real actor on the TV show. So does Julia Butters. That's insane to me that you would basically cast those Casting. characters. It's, it's roles within roles. It, it, this is why I think this might get more credit for screenplay than we're currently giving credit for. Maybe, maybe. Uh, the Green Hornet is involved. We have Jenny Takes a Ride, the Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels CC Ryder theme song from the Joe <laughs> Namath <laughs> McGraw, Ali McGraw movie. I can't believe that. And then it spins off into the Blues Brothers song before it was the Blues Brothers song. <laughs> yeah. Well, he just, you know, he's getting his Hollywood licks in. Finally, well, actually, I had two more topics here. It's crazy how many homages. You have all the spaghetti westerns and Sergio Corbucci, Sergio Leone. You have those westerns referenced, the real ones, fake ones, slightly changed ones. You have a movie called, in 1966, Savage Gringo, which plays a big part in this movie. Ken Clark plays Ringo slash Nebraska, Mike. Hey, go figure, huh? There you go. We have Burt Reynolds' career, like I mentioned, up top from the 50s and 60s. It really mirrors what you have, the dynamic between him and Hal Needham, Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham, to Rick Dalton and, of course, Brad Pitt. Yeah, to your credit, you have a couple of comparisons that you saw and were able to dig up through research that you're going to pitch yeah. in the spoiler section, which is very interesting to me. Yeah, it's, it, it mirrors those careers. and Even though it's di- we don't go far, right. so we don't know what the what's going to happen with uh, Leo and, and Brad here. Finally, all the movie theaters and restaurants, you have El Coyote, Musso and Frank's, uh, for the Pacino meeting. A year from now, Mike, we could probably create a list this long. Right. Again, with all the extra details, because something like the car that Brad Pitt drives, that was Tarantino's father's car. And he said that the, all the shots of Brad Pitt driving throughout that montage yeah. was as if Tarantino was in the passenger seat looking up at his dad. That's the camera angle we were given, as if we were in the passenger seat ourselves looking up at Brad Pitt for the cinematography's sake. So the smartest thing Tarantino might do for Oscar campaign-wise, just put videos out there, making of videos, like Quaron was doing in his campaign. Mm. This is my childhood bedroom, et etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. Put production design videos out there. And you might win because of all the detail that we would realize after the fact. Well, Sony can't do much more for him, putting $100 million (laughs) plus into the marketing of it. The FYC campaign for this is going to be fascinating. And like we always say when it comes to big, heavy, big picture, best picture candidates that come out in the summer. Good segue. prime for re-release. This could easily come back out in December. It's going to depend on what it does overseas. Like if it becomes a huge hit overseas, if they're going to make enough money to where they're fine with it. Or if Sony's like, yeah. Let's re-release this yeah. in December and then put it out in January, February, or re-release it in January, February. I could totally see that happening. I agree with you. Here's where we finish, Mike. Oscar lens for best director and best picture. Mid-year, both of us thought it was the front runner for best picture. Ford versus Ferrari and The Farewell were our, our likely nom and wild mm-hmm. card. So far this year, we have Avengers Endgame, Toy Story 4, Us. Last year, we had Green Book, Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bo Rap, The Favorite, Roma, Stars Born, and Vice nominated. Those eight that we picked perfectly. Does this stack up as a best picture nominee for you? Yes, without question. And we think, we're talking about in the prep, this is Tarantino's most palatable Oscar 
film that we've seen yet. My entire through line is going to be that he made this film with the Academy in mind every step of the way. Mm. Uh, not only from the perspective of what they would want to see, but from the perspective of he is an embattled now writer-director mm -hmm. that is craving a director and picture Oscar that is trying to placate an Academy knowing that he has a lot of stuff that he's going to have to answer for, and he's going to be held to a higher standard of criticism because of what he's gone through in his history and because of the widening academy and the more diverse academy is going to call for him to be held accountable for it. And he's going to have, and he has certain scenes that he answers certain criticisms away. And one I can give away now because it doesn't really spoil anything. One of the first things we see in the credits after this film rolls, which is usually reserved for the end of the credits, is no animals were harmed in the making of this picture. It's a big wide banner right across the opening of the credits. Really? Because unless you thought that mouse caught in the mouse trap in one of these scenes was an actual animal, and you could even hold that he killed a mouse against him, right. well, he answers that right away, that please don't get mad at me for hurting a mice. <laughs> I, a mouse, I didn't even do that. So I think this is his most restrained Tarantino picture, specifically because he's going for Best Picture, Best Director. Now, when you do that, you bring up a lot of ethical arguments. So we're going to have a few of those in our spoiler sure. section. And we're not going to get down, we're not going to go down the rabbit hole of them necessarily. But let's look at the last few Best Picture winners. I mean, Green Book, it's a movie about real artists. Shape of Water, you have all the old Hollywood stuff thrown thrown into that. You go back to Spotlight, a movie, movie about real journalists. Birdman, a movie about an actor. You got 12 Years a Slave is a period piece. Argo is a movie about movie making. The Artist is a movie about movie making. The King's Speech, real, real person. Uh, Slumdog Millionaire, a movie about like a TV production somewhere along Hollywood the Hollywood loves themselves some biopics. We've gone over this time and time again. A, a movie within a movie, a production within a production. This was throughout Shakespeare's work. Criticism, art criticism and appreciation loves to applaud this. The Oscars. Just then, this is going back to 2008, Mike. Mm -hmm. So many of these movies have that element in there. You can go back to Shakespeare and Love, etc., etc. I'd you, rather not. You have <laughs> so many movies about movies, about storytelling, win Best Picture. I will say, he is not a stupid man, Quentin Tarantino. It's he, his most Oscar-grabby film yet, isn't it? Yes, and he knows that from the jump. Right, so he's placating or he's right. reassuring people. Right, he knows the game. At I mean, he knows what he's got to do. Time, he's very risky with the narrative decisions in this at times as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is he as risky as he would have been if this was the Django era? I would argue no. I agree. This is toned down Tarantino yeah. in many ways. Best director to end on, uh, we had... What uh, do you think means more to him? If he could only win one of those, if he doesn't win screenplay because he's going to win... Whatever he wins, he'll say meant more to him. That's not what I'm asking you. What do you <laughs> think? We've studied this guy for for untold hours now. we probably put 100 hours between research, recordings, of, of and editings research. into yeah. this. Yeah. What do you think means more to him? He wants both. He wants it all. God damn it, Mike. I Which one? Answer. I can't answer. <laughs> of course he wants, he wants both. both. Of course he does. I think best picture at the end you of the day. You think so? Yeah. I don't know. Do, what do, you, do you think it's best director? I think it's best picture. Yeah. I think he can have a career where he walks away not winning Best Director ever, but saying, I made the best movie in one year, I probably made it in two others anyway, and I have, you know, I'm one of the few people that has two screenplay awards as well. I'm the greatest of all time. If he wins Best Picture and Best Director, does he retire? Yes. I think so. 
I, that's that's been my caveat. And that's been in my mind the whole time. If he if Leo if this is one of those cases where we got a Leo win, if Brad Pitt somehow wins it, if he can walk away with a director screenplay picture, if he can get two of those three, why would he make a tenth film right now? All right. So gun to your head, knife to your throat. Does he win both? God, good lord. So let's talk about director for a half a second while you're pondering that because. My likely nominee was Greta Gerwig. Yours was D. Reese for The Last Thing You Wanted. Uh, wild Cards, I had Casey Lemons for Harriet. You had Scott C. Burns for The Report. Last year we had Quaron and Paul Lukowski surprising us as uh, international film nominees. I mean, this is up there with Roma, right? Yeah, Spike Lee, Lanthimos, and Adam McKay for Vice. If Roma was Quaron's love letter to his childhood... This is the same thing. Right. Because Tarantino was a child during this time period. And it's co- it's so radically different from Roma that you don't think the Academy would have fatigue from nominating or respecting it two years in a row. Now, Tarantino might have went to Spawn Ranch, not Spawn Ranch, with his <laughs> mom and dad, but he did go horseback riding like this, like the characters did in this movie. Listen, I mean, it's recency bias. I'm in love with this movie. We're going to talk more about that and how we feel about it. I have more qualms. I, I definitely you see do. a million you, red flags. Without question. Without question. And and you are more, you're more well-rounded in your criticism of it than I am. I agree. That's not to say I don't see plenty of red flags myself. All of that said, is he going to win both? That remains to be seen. He's the leader for me right now in both categories. I don't know if he's the leader for me. I would say the Russo brothers, who never get any credit, is probably the leader in the best director category for pulling that off. I got, I, they're not going to get nominated. I realize that. I got them winning screenplay. <laughs> Lulu Wang, Jordan Peele, Ari Aster, Olivia Wilde. The otherwise, yeah, I mean, we, we don't have the oscar films yet. Could some right. of those mount a campaign with the new Academy? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, Olivia Wilde was awesome in, in Booksmart. Right. I was thrilled with what she was able to do. Lulu Wang, by all accounts, is going to be a contender. We've t- been talking about her as yeah. like a lovable long shot, but I think she's going to be much more than that. Jordan Peele, probably not for this movie, maybe for screenplay, but in likely the Likely not, yeah, like, yeah. Likely not for, for us. Man, if this is a Tarantino, and we had—I mean, you mentioned all those names. You didn't even mention Scorsese once. We who did. I think we did talk about him a lot. Who yeah. I think Tarantino is taking a direct shot at in this movie in one scene, and I'll talk about that in spoilers. Wow! All right, so the final question for this Oscar lens: How many nominations? I'm saying seven. Picture, director, actor, original screenplay, production design, cinematography, and I'm guessing sound editing or sound mixing. It'll get one of those. I'm leaving out editing, supporting actor, supporting actress, and the other sound category as well as costumes. Leaving out editing means you don't think it's a leader for best picture. I don't. I don't think Tarantino ever wins a best picture. It's my guess. Woo-hoo! It's my guess, Woo-hoo! and I still think. It's hot. Yeah, I don't think this is the political movie because it's not representative, right? At the it's end not. Of the it's certainly not. You're it's absolutely a movie right. About there. two four-year-old white right guys. Nineteen eighty-five. This might have won. Uh, I don't know. Picture, absolutely. Director, absolutely. Actor, absolutely. Original screenplay, likely. Uh, production design, I will be offended if it's not. Cinematography, I could be talked into. I don't know that I would say definitely there. I think it does make an editing nomination. I think it's going to get a nom in one of the sound categories as well. I can see supporting actor and supporting actress, especially if it's going to be a weak field, which it may be because supporting actress has been kind of heavy the last couple of years. So we might be due for a little bit of a regression. Um... I think I just rattled off eight right there. So that's around the end. Do the playback. Yeah. To count them. But yeah, seven or eight makes sense. It could go as many as 12. Yeah. It's a. For fuck's sake, if the shape of water landed that many. (laughs) (laughs) 
right, final thoughts, Mike. We love this movie. We can't wait to break down the plot for you in spoilers. We got five Tarantino segments that we've been doing that have been unique to this Tarantino yeah. rewatch. They're like the screenwriting advice, and I got something for you there. Our trademark Tarantino. We're going to do three versions of best scenes. We are going to talk about worst scenes and have a yep. debate. And oh, connections to the Tarantino verse, all the Easter eggs. There's as many homages as we have. We have the <laughs> same number of Easter eggs and connections to the Tarantino. Since verse. we're like on the 80th minute of this podcast, <laughs> you're welcome for doing this in two episodes, dear listener. That we don't have this uh, 18 hour once upon a time of Hollywood extravaganza for you that no one would listen to. Uh, we did want to make this one more Oscar focused and Oscar centric. We are going to talk even more about Oscar chances and possibilities at the end of this week when we have our soft opening of our new Oscar race update weekly show that we're going to debut so at the end of this week. So many stories and trailers to review on that. It's loaded it's already. It's going to be a big one, yeah. It's going to be another monstrous series from us. We're so dumb. <laughs> we're so Quantity dumb. over quality. <laughs> uh, but, puberty, but we do, <laughs> we do want to hear but. from you. <laughs> Dear listener, as always, let me any, take that again. But <laughs> any comments, questions, concerns, <laughs> feedback, anything you have, we love hearing from you. As always, uh, whether it's about this non-spoiler specific, whether it's about something you hope to hear from us in the spoiler section or the spoiler episode, I should say, coming up in a day or two, or whether it's about anything we covered here in the MMO Empire, we want you to reach out to us. As always, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com, dot com, and on. On Reddit, we are available everywhere. You hear podcasts, whether that's TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc., etc. If you type in Mike, Mike, and Oscar, you'll see our cartoon faces waving back at you. And if you appreciate what we do here, if you can take three seconds and just click the five stars on Apple Podcasts for a review, those truly help us out a lot. And if you're feeling extra righty, Leave us a comment. We'll read yeah, it out on air. They really do help. Uh, in terms of words of wisdom, Mike, we already went over like what's coming up. In terms of words of wisdom, go see this movie. Yeah. At the very least, you're going to get your money's worth. That's how our friend Matt at Next Best Picture opened up his episode. Whether you love it or hate it, you're going to respond to it. And we want to hear what you think. And yeah. We want you to be able we're to listen. Curious. Yeah, we're, we want we're to, very curious. We want you to be able to listen to that next episode because so much work has already gone into it. Three watches, all the Manson Family documentaries. I'm going to go home and watch another Manson Family documentary right now. Probably going to fist fight with the mics (laughs) recording for the spoiler episode. So you got that to look forward to. It's going to be a slap fight, and it's not going to go very long. (laughs) We're going to be breathing heavily. That will be the saddest display of athleticism. (laughs) (laughs) In between. Guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch these movies with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. Once upon a time in Hollywood, go check it out. The spoiler episode coming next. See you. I'm the sun, I'm the sun, sun, I'm the sun, sun, I'm the sun, sun, sun of a loving man. I'm the sun of a loving man.